Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the political comedy podcast that tackles the news accidentally by falling into it when not looking because it's too busy tweeting something sarcastic in order to stop fascism. This is episode 146, I'm Tiernan Duyeb, and yes, lazy, lazy cosplay of Jabba the Hutt and US President Donald Trump has arrived in the UK for his fucking state of this visit. Before his plane even landed, old big burnt sienna face Trump had already tweeted that Mayor of London and alternative Martin Freeman, Sadiq Khan, was a stone-cold loser and should be focusing on crime in London instead of him. But as Trump is one of America's biggest sex pests and he's now in the capital, I sort of feel like it's the same thing. Only last week in the US, life model for Sam the Eagle and now former special counsel Robert Mueller said that his report did not say Trump was not guilty of collusion, it's just that charging him was not an option on account of him being president. Then Mueller announced his resignation because having to spend that much time focusing on things Donald has said is enough to make you want to give up on everything. Trump took this statement to mean that he's innocent, tweeting that the case is closed, again adding to my theory that I think he's so unaware of anything that they may as well just set him up in a prop version of the White House from an old film or TV set with a toy phone on the desk and tell him he's still president while installing a grown-up in the real one and I doubt he'd know the difference for quite some time. So now the UK is the first to welcome the president with his new potentially criminal status because apparently we're all about the second chances except when it comes to referendums or any other criminals unless they run a country and might want to buy all our broken stuff after Brexit. Before arriving, Trump insulted the Duchess of Sussex, you know, the one the Queen keeps thinking is a member of staff, Meghan Markle, and said she was nasty, which I suppose could have meant he was just keen to sexually harass her. But within a day, he'd rejected these comments, saying that he'd never said them, despite the audio of him saying them. Which means one of two things. Either he suffers from a disassociative disorder where, like Gollum, 90% of the day he's evil Trump, spouting batshit rudeness, and then for a brief moment every day, the real Trump appears and tries to fix things before being pummeled back under town and horror unable to escape. Or more likely, he's just a horrible prick and we're now so deep into an age that advocates lying and a lack of facts that the only real way to tackle this might be to use lies and fear against people like Donald Trump. No, don't get on Air Force One and leave the country, it'll only clean the air more. Facts? Oh sure, I drew them on this napkin, see? And every time you use Twitter it creates five more vegans. You know, things like that. 
He also said that human ball pit Boris Johnson would make an excellent Conservative leader, which is a sort of compliment that I think cancels itself out when it comes from someone who'd struggle to lead a horse to water without the horse deciding it was better just to die of thirst if it meant his collapsing horse body might fall on this orange turd and save the planet. The President's other endlessly unwise comments, including that drooping goat anus and leader of the Brexit party, Nigel Farage, should be involved in the Brexit negotiations. And actually, I think that's a great idea, as it'd mean he'd have to actually go to Strasbourg or Brussels for once, and not just to visit one of his mistresses, but to actually enter the EU Parliament, which I think might cause him to melt like a slug. Trump actually wants Boris or Farage involved, not just because the two of them are one face swap and tan bit away from being his budget clones, but also because a no-deal Brexit would mean the US could swoop in and buy up absolutely everything. US ambassador to the UK and man whose name basically means he's a double penis, Woody Johnson, has openly said that in a post-Brexit deal with America, everything, including the NHS, would be on the table. And considering the standard US portion size, it's highly likely they'd gobble that up and then order dessert to finish. The only single bonus of a US-style healthcare system is that with all the cigarettes he smokes and pints he drinks, there's a high chance Farage wouldn't get any insurance at all and we'd all laugh as he has to resort to becoming a health tourist in a European country. Air Force One landed at Stansted on Monday morning um, and considering that choice of airport, maybe it's not that much of a welcome for Trump after all, before he got straight onto a helicopter. I was then hoping that they'd then drop him off to get on a glider, then a wingsuit, before finally they just left old Donnie in a field with one of those caps with a propeller on and fucked off. Trump is in the UK for three days, during which who knows what he'll manage to do. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if next week's podcast starts with me commenting on how he managed to sit on the Queen, complain that the UK was hostile to him because it started to rain and he couldn't put his umbrella up, before spending 30 minutes talking to an old throw rug thinking it's Prime Minister and skin wrapped around a void, Theresa May. So far, at the time of the recording, all that's really happened is a series of videos of Trump, Melania and various royals walking around the palace, looking like it's a really boring promo for The Walking Dead. What I do know is that several protests are planned, despite any attention merely feeding the beast. I mean, it would be much better for us all to just completely ignore his visit and pretend we don't even know who he is. And every time he speaks to someone, they could just say, I'm sorry, I don't understand. Do you speak English before walking off? The Trump baby balloon will be flying over London again, which I have to say I do think is an unfair representation of the US president, but only because he's always releasing his hot air and usually from both ends. All of this in the week of the D-Day celebrations as well, and here we are in Britain welcoming a man who sympathises with white supremacists. It's like announcing to the world, hey, we used to fight them and now we're inviting them for tea with the Queen. Come and visit us to see how much we progress backwards. No, wait, don't come and visit us. That's the opposite of what we want. Outside of unwanted foreign interference, the Conservative leadership race is stumbling along like barely alive roadkill that's desperate to be put out of its misery. Even more candidates have been announced because, you know, if you throw enough shit at a wall, people eventually can't see the wall anymore and begin to normalise living with an endless cascade of shit instead. The newest contenders are current Deputy Chairman of the Conservative Party and man who even his own name is allied, James Cleverly, who's most well-known for saying stupid things on Twitter, so to be fair, in this current climate and based on this week's visitor, that could well qualify him for a leadership. James says the party needs a complete refresh, which he assumes would mean he'd still be in it. If that's all a refresh manages, then I think this system is sadly corrupted and what it actually needs is deleting and installing an entirely different OS. Next up is Lumpy Custard in a Suit, Kit Malthouse, who's best known for coming up with a Brexit compromise that wouldn't work and no one liked. Again, that doesn't actually disqualify him from becoming Conservative leader and Prime Minister. Oh God, how on earth did we get here? 
Malthouse has previously openly admitted that he wanted to make homeless people uncomfortable, which is really horrible, but also quite tough when they already have to sleep outdoors due to his party's shitty policies. One of Malthouse's leadership shouts is to inject fresh new ideas like buying up lamb for schools in the event of a no-deal. I'm not sure if that's for food or, you know, as a no-deal would deprive the UK of so, so much. Maybe it's also for stationery, with children having to write things in lamb's blood directly onto the carcasses of diabetics like me who will have died from insulin deprivation within a few weeks. Maybe they can tile the lamb giblets together for skipping ropes in PE before using the hooves for basic percussion instruments in music. Ah, lamb. Look, I know you're screaming, why not use various bits for science? But come on, there won't be any science lessons when we hit Dark Ages 2.0, silly Billy. Lastly, but probably not leastly, is Minister for Universities and Simon from the Chipmunks, Sam Gamaya, who won't win because he's not white, went to a state school and he wants a second referendum on the Brexit deal. I mean, the only way he could make himself less electable to the Conservative membership would be by being in a wheelchair and saying he thinks the Archers is shit and he'd instantly be forcibly removed. Oh, no, wait, uh, there is also one more, uh, Mark Harper, but I'm honestly not sure if he exists or it's just a construct made from an album full of stock photos of men who've just found a hemorrhoid cream that works. All the 10,006 other candidates that shouldn't be trusted to run a tap, let alone the country, have also been setting out their Brexit policies or lack of. Mother Andrea Leadsom said she's seeking a managed no-deal, which is impossible, as that would be a deal which she isn't looking for, she's looking for a no-deal, but a managed one. Then she said she'd secure a bill that locks in all the mutually beneficial measures that have already been agreed by the UK and EU, except none have yet, as no deal has been agreed at all, because she and other MPs keep voting against them. Again, look, I'm mostly bothered by the lack of imagination. If you're going to promise things that can't be done and don't exist, why not promise, say, a free manticore for every household and kitchen sinks that also have a font for custard and jelly? Ledsam always bangs on about being a parent, but it must be a pretty tedious life for her kids if any playtime with them involved her telling them that they had some trade deals while cutting off all their supplies. Stupid clothes peg and Foreign Secretary Jeremy Hunt has U-turned on his Brexit policies by saying a no-deal is political suicide, although as is having Hunt as PM, so it's possible he's still going for a no-deal, and that's just all part of the package. Brutalised sea cucumber Michael Gove says that he'll delay Brexit, possibly until 2020, which is basically saying, vote for me, I'll be exactly like the last PM, only even harder to look at. Enthusiastic children's dog puppet and health secretary Matt Hancock has a plan for an Irish border council, which is a great idea and not at all insulting to Northern Irish citizens who don't even have a government but will now have a special council for a currently invisible line. Whereas Pebble with Eyes and Home Secretary Sajid Javid has basically offered to throw money at Ireland for them to install border technology that doesn't yet exist for a job they haven't caused. Like how he might say, throw a wad of notes at his cleaner to remove a body that had an accident that never happened. Javid also said he put money towards an extra 20,000 police officers on the beat, something he said he couldn't do in the previous government where he was the Home Secretary and in charge of police. I mean, basically, his campaign is entirely vote for me to delegate things to other people who might be able to do it better than I can because I'm fucking useless. Meanwhile, walking in gorged neck vein, Dominic Raab has spent most of the week saying that he's not a feminist, probably because he thinks that means being a citizen of some country called Feminasia that he's made up in his head and thinks is across this channel he's just discovered. And love child of Richard Ashcroft and the woman in black, Rory Stewart, has embarked on his campaign, which has mainly involved him travelling around the UK, pretending to film himself while promoting things that he's previously voted against in Parliament. One such film showed him dressed in a Mac in Kew Gardens, saying people could meet him there if they had any questions, as though he'd be lurking in the back of the greenhouse ready to either pass on a secret code or just show him his knob. All for the entrance fee of £16. Bargain.
Apparently, his homegrown campaign raised £23,000 in the first 10 hours of it being on his website, all in 10 and £20 donations, though I do wonder how many people thought their Kew Gardens entrance fee was included. Stewart also admitted that he once smoked opium at a wedding in Iran and said it was a very stupid mistake, but actually it shows he's way better than anti-feminist Rob, as Stewart is clearly all about the heroines. Oh, and then there's Boris, who launched his campaign with a video where he looks like he's just sipped from the cup he thought was the Holy Grail, but wasn't, and keeps banging on about supporting businesses, even though it was this time last year that he said, referring to business concerns over a no-deal, fuck business. So either he has no awareness that people can use Google, like Trump, he does have awareness but doesn't care, or he's super aware that anything he's fucked will actually need quite a lot of support afterwards. There is a chance Boris won't make it to the end of the race, though, as he's been summoned to court, accused of misconduct in a public office after making the claim that the UK give the EU £350 million a week and that that would be spent on the NHS after Brexit, something that anyone who's ever read anything said definitely wasn't true. The only issue might be is that if Boris is found guilty and it becomes illegal to lie in a public office, then that could mean that we suddenly need 650 entirely new MPs. Wait, sorry, did I say that was an issue? No, sorry, what I meant was it could be exactly what's needed. Yeah. So that's 13 contenders, unlucky for most, and the BBC have announced that they will be televising the leadership debates because there's nothing more fun than watching a witch's coven full of arseholes make promises they won't keep for an election we can't actually vote in. But is it all pointless anyway, as one opinion poll last week showed Lib Dems at the top of the public's Westminster voting intention, an outcome that must have got the party so excited that they probably opened up their pre-mixed spritzer from M&S and shared it around the three of them. But not too much, as it was a school night, you know. They're not going crazy. The Lib Dems are also currently looking for a new leader to replace Vince Cable, who's presumably leaving so he'll be able to play Friar Tuck in Disney's live-action version of their Robin Hood film. So far, potential leaders include Simon Day's least-enjoyed character, Ed Davey, who would allow the party to take all the recent gains they've made and violently throw them into a trash fire. Or Eternal Head Girl, Jo Swinson, who seems a far more sensible choice, just on account of her not appearing like a political George Costanza. When asked on the Today programme what the naughtiest thing she's ever done was, Swinson replied that she had fun in her teenage years. Which I mean is just such a non-answer as everyone did, didn't they? Or at least, you know, remembers that they did, even though there was barely any sort of sex or drugs, it was mostly spent squeezing spots and trying to work out how not to be a total loser. Or, I had fun in my teenage years, is proof that she and some friends ran someone over on a spring break road trip and barely survived after the undead creature chased them with fish hooks around a port town for at least three films. I mean, it's going to be one or the other, isn't it? One or the other. Another poll last week, however, had the Lib Dems much further down with the Brexit party up top because nothing fills my heart with fear like the possibility of a party winning a general election with a manifesto that's just full of the shrug emoji. Brexit Party MEP and Sylvia Ganush in Drag Me to Hell and Widdicombe really aided the party's image of being something for the 21st century, that's BC, obviously, by saying that she believed science might one day produce an answer to being gay. A comment that was shocking not only in its content, but also the revelation that Widdicombe believes in science when we were all certain she was just into some sort of ancient black magic. So, she's still an old homophobe and fingers crossed scientists will ignore her comments and instead spend their time working on a cure that will completely and utterly remove her. In other news, Shaved Wind in the Willows character and Speaker of the House John Burkow has said that he has no plans to stand down from his position, though that will make his legs very tired during those long parliamentary sessions. Yes, I went there. This announcement has angered a lot of Brexiteers who'll think that he'll work on a way for Parliament to block a no-deal, which must be really annoying when the sovereign Parliament you get isn't the one you read about in the brochure that never existed. 
The Labour Party, you know, the opposition who represent the everyday people, because most everyday people don't like their boss, have come under fire for expelling former Labour spin doctor and hunter of imaginary weapons Alistair Campbell after he announced that he'd voted Liberal Democrat in the EU elections, something that's against the Labour membership rules under rules that were put in by the government Campbell was part of. Many were quick to point out that Labour MP and warning on a cigarette packet Kate Hoey has often promoted the Brexit party but hasn't been expelled, but they seem to forget that she can only be removed by destroying all her horcruxes, many of which are still in unknown locations. Campbell has said it's a discriminatory decision and I'm just waiting for him to claim there's no evidence and for everyone to absolutely ignore him. The Equality and Human Rights Commission has launched a formal investigation into the Labour Party over allegations of anti-Semitism, which to even get to the threshold for such a thing to happen is pretty damning for them. Labour have said they'll fully cooperate, but released a statement saying that a 70% budget cut mean the EHRC can't operate properly, which feels a bit like an own goal, as if they find that Labour is guilty of severe anti-Semitic conduct, it'll now show that it was so evident that even with a couple of part-timers they were able to find evidence pretty quick by just skim-reading Twitter on an unpaid lunch break. Following the investigation announcement, Labour suspended NEC member and evidence that human beings can cave in from the inside first, Peter Wilsman, after he blamed the Israeli embassy for the anti-Semitism allegations against Labour. So that there is proof that Labour handle issues of anti-Semitism really quickly by just making sure they deal with members as soon as they've made their 14th or possibly 15th or 16th problematic comment over a number of years. It's effective, but only if you really look at the entire history of humanity in comparison to the timeline of the universe. In in that case, it's real speedy, real speedy. The leader's office are also under pressure over the reinstatement in 2017 of communications team member and David from the royal family, David Prescott, who had allegations of sexual harassment made against him at the time, including allegedly that he took a shit on the kitchen floor of a female MP who'd rejected his advances. Labour say no formal complaint has been made, which is why they reinstated him after two weeks. But if that's the case, and hey, rules are rules, at least reassure people he's never in charge of lunch or doing the washing up. Yeah? Yeah. And lastly, decomposed melon Gerard Batten has resigned his leadership of UKIP after their EU elections failures. Good. I hope he goes back to where he came from. Yo, 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 yo. Uh, welcome, Parpol Brods, to another episode of this show where the intros had to be so long uh, to cram in all the absolutely nothing of note that's happened over the past week. I mean, it's amazing to watch a leadership race, or in fact, a race of any kind, where you just really, really want somehow uh, everyone to lose. I'm really starting to feel that, in fact, the whole Conservative contest should just be done as a sort of Royal Rumble-style deathmatch, uh, which, to be fair, I would actually watch on the BBC, so they should really get onto that. Hell, I'd pay for it. I have spent the last few days recovering from taking our little one to our friend's barbecue on Saturday where we failed to really eat anything or talk to anyone as we spent the entire time stopping her from charging face first into burning hot fire things or people's plates of food or smashing all their drinks or somehow trying to do all three at once. I mean, still, I suppose what's important is that she had fun, uh, which I'm not sure she did as she mainly cried the entire time because we wouldn't let her burn her face off. It's very weird that it's a child's instinct to just throw themselves off things, jump at sharp stuff, try to eat all of the things that would instantly kill them. I mean... What's evolution doing? I often feel really pleased that I spent a lot of time as a kid playing the computer game Lemmings, so I almost feel prepared. But how did we survive as a species if that's your kind of natural instinct? We should have been wiped out thousands of years ago when a few toddling Neanderthals thought it best to charge at a mammoth and try and climb or bite its tusks. Sorry, I can't really get the thought of careering crazed toddlers destroying humanity out of my head. Must be the Trump state visit that's done it. Hmm. 
Thanks tons for being here once again, uh, despite some of this podcast probably running out of relevance pretty quickly in this week of everything happening. I mean, it's Trump visiting now, Peterborough by-election, then D-Day anniversary and May's last day all this week, uh, whereas last week was just largely Rory Stewart asking everyone to play an extremely boring live-action version of Pokemon Go. Um, but you're here, and that's what matters, and um, thank you to you for that, and thanks this week to also to Davalon uh, for the very lovely review on the iTunes. Um, if you two would like to throw this show five stars and say something nice about it on any of the pod apps then please go do that as it does help lure other unsuspecting ears to this show um, i'm aware itunes is supposedly going soon uh, isn't it they're, they're getting rid of it to be replaced with a podcast app which i'm guessing will be exactly the same but a different color um, i'm just going to refuse to update my computer and get people to pay tickets to come and look at it like it's a museum look at my machine from the 2018s um, if you've already reviewed the show or you're actively against the idea uh, or your parents were killed by a review when you were a child and now you spend your evenings dressing up as a vigilante in order to take them down down, um, then why not throw me a quid or two at the patreon.com forward slash parpolbro or ko-fi.com ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro pages um, so in this hot weather I can buy a cold drink that I'll never have time to consume as I'll be too busy trying to stop my daughter from somehow chucking it at an angry dog and of course if you can't do either of those things please just do spread the word about this show and make sure it's a nice word, something like plinth. Um, only other thing this week is the small announcement that while I'm not doing the Edinburgh Fringe this year on account of not being a multi-millionaire as it seems renting a there um, requires you to now remortgage the house that you don't own in the first place. Um, I'm not doing that. So what I am doing, though, is two shows at the Camden Fringe on August the 4th and 5th, which is a Sunday and Monday because I meant to book a Tuesday and Wednesday, but I looked at the wrong month on my phone calendar. True story. Anyway, you can book tickets for those at camdenfringe.com and it'll be 60 minutes of new stand-up from me, very likely including some politics whining as well as some parenting whining and also... No, wait, no, that is it. That's what it's going to be. But it will be jokes. There'll be jokes in there, promise. Some jokes in amongst the wines. Um, on this week's show, I am very chuffed to have interviewed brilliant Guardian journalist and disability rights campaigner Dr Frances Ryan all about her new book, um, which is a must-read. It really is. Um, I was so pleased that she had time to chat. Uh, I'm really excited uh, for you to hear that interview. Um, also, a little look at the review of the Modern Slavery Act, which absolutely no-one is mentioning anywhere because everyone's too focused on which useless Tory they can't vote for or the Tewitts monster that's stomping around the UK insisting everyone eats chicken that tastes like a swimming pool. So, let's get on with it, shall we? There's that famous quote by Mahatma Gandhi that's often thrown around Twitter where he said, a nation's greatness is measured by how it treats its weakest members. Which, if you go by that, our nation is pretty great as it appears to be led by a bunch of total weak members. And they're having a great time being really, really shitty to people with disabilities who wouldn't be weak at all if it wasn't for a massive slashing of every benefit, service and avenue of independence that many of them have had. If you have a disability and live in the UK, it means that for the last nine years you've probably been referred to as a scrounger or work shy, been told you can work even though you can't, or if you can, been unable to find work that will actually provide the necessary support so you can be there and do your job, and then you've had all your money cut off on account of you not being able to provide for yourself. Thanks to policies started by big old spoon-faced David Cameron and his government back in 2010, the Department of Work and Pensions has become less of a functioning public body and more a frustrating sphinx, throwing out riddles that had Oedipus already stuck pins in his eyes when confronting it, it'd have made things harder for him in order to just be a shit. People have been sanctioned for payments for not attending appointments despite being completely bedbound. They've been declared fit for work with notes saying they can walk their dog despite not being able to walk or having a dog. Or they've been told they're too well for benefits while being denied work or study as apparently they're not well enough for those. It's the sort of thing Joseph Heller would have deemed too impossible and cruel to write about. 
Yet while you probably all remember Atos declaring themselves not fit to work anymore, angry thumb Ian Duncan Smith spending more money on his breakfast than anyone in need, and Lord Freud enforcing bedroom tax while he lived in a mansion with so many rooms only necessary so that he could hear his maniacal laugh echo around them, the suffering that disabled people are going through hasn't been dwelled on in the media all that much in recent times. The 2017 UN report stating that the UK's treatment of people with disabilities was a human catastrophe was shrugged off by the government as disappointing, causing them to do absolutely zero about it. Although that could also be because disappointing is their general mark of attainment. Instead, millions of people have just continued to suffer without a voice, without any hope for change, and with universal credit, despite all its immense failures, still being pushed forward and social care being totally annihilated. So this week, as a podcast that's also regretfully ignored this issue for quite some time, I spoke to Dr Frances Ryan, a Guardian columnist and campaigner for disability rights, and she spoke to me all about her new book, Crippled, Austerity and the Demonisation of Disabled People. The book is out this week, and having read it, I really can't recommend it enough. Um, It's brilliantly written, it's a very powerful read, um, though the stories of what people have been forced to go through and how they've been pushed into severe, sometimes life-ending poverty did cause need for me to put it down a few times and just generally despair. Um, I think it's a very, very necessary read right now, and hopefully Amber Rudd is digesting a copy of it in the DWP right this second, uh, though somehow I'm sure in reality she's just unaware of any of it. Um, Anyway, I was so pleased that Frances had time to chat as I've read many of her articles and she often provides such intelligent, acute insights into the effects of austerity and the general terrible state of things. So um, I hope you enjoy this and if you do, I've popped a link to her book in the podcast blurb, so do get yourself a copy. Here's Frances. Right, uh, Francis, your book was uh, was absolutely fantastic. Um, and at times, and I mean this in in a because uh, it was brilliantly written, but at times it was a very tough read uh, because hearing about the things that people are going through, the way in which their um, independence has been forcibly taken from them, um, you know, they've been forced into poverty. It was it, it really just horrific, horrific uh, stories of people's lives. Um, I think one of the the things that really struck me. Um, and I say this, I'm, I'm uh, talking to you now the day after Panorama was on last night, all about crisis in care and Channel 4 News. But pretty much up until yesterday, I, this really hadn't been in the news much for the last few years um, since maybe the Atos uh, sort of uh, when they quit uh, doing the assessment. Why is the scale of cruelty and suffering um, that people with disabilities are being subject to? Why is it so ignored? Yeah, I think that's, that's a really important issue because I think I think at this point... No one who's you know engaged in politics, who's who has an interest in in what's happening in the country, I think is completely unaware of what's happening to disabled people. Of course, they don't know the, the detail like those people going through or people working in the area. But I think, as you say, we, we've had these stories, haven't we? We've had the odd documentary, we've had you know the odd front page with Atos disasters, we've had Universal Credit repeatedly mentioned. But then I think there's the feeling that that then nothing really happens. We're having, you know, just this, these really little tiny moments, but we've not had this little critical point where it really hits mainstream attention. And I think that's probably a couple of reasons. Um, one is that I think disabled people are no different than, than other marginalised groups in the way that we just don't have that level of coverage and representation in much of the media. I think that you know, there's a huge issue in Britain of fantastic reporting, but at the same time, um, people who aren't represented in the media themselves, so, you know, working class people, disabled people and others, just aren't necessarily um, having their stories pushed forward. 
like they would do if disabled people were, you know, at the forefront of this coverage. And I think, secondly, there's some specific issues with disability. So I think Britain has, and that's why I'm trying to talk about in the book, the, the, the relationship Britain has with disability. And I think it's still a really difficult and complex one. I think on the one hand, if you ask most people, they'd say that absolutely they want um, Britain to be a place that's compassionate and supportive of disabled people. But at the same time, I think I think it's an issue that politicians can really easily ignore. I think when we see things like, you know, pensioners quite rightly having their benefits protected um, because they're seen as a block that politicians would never target. Disabled people just aren't perceived in that way. We don't have that sense of power. And I think at the same time, there's a real um, sort of awkwardness and confusion about what disability actually is like day to day. So I think when you read a story about, say, someone's social care being cut, on a human level, you think, oh, that's horrific. But also because you might have sort of cultural perceptions of disability, like, for example, disabled people don't have sexual relationships, we don't have jobs, um, we don't do the same sort of things that other people do. It becomes, I think, less, less. Um, it's not as big a deal, shall we say, um, as if these things were happening to what people might perceive as, as normal people. And I think those perceptions of disability and our reluctance um, to really talk about disability and, and talk, talk about what actual real life is like for disabled people is, is a really big part of how these sort of policies are enabled to sort of roll along and keep going. Yeah, because I remember sort of, uh, obviously, sort of 2012, when we had the Paralympics in London, there was this big hoo-ha about, you know, disabled people are important and it, it, everyone made a big deal about it. But I remember at the same time, friends of mine who are wheelchair users being, you know, stopped by people in the street saying, why aren't you in the Paralympics? And not being able to understand that lots of disabled people have normal lives or, you know, it, it's a, it, there was a complete lack of understanding that if you weren't a Paralympian, what was the point of you? You know, which was was horrific. Yeah, I think I think that confusion is, is a really common issue because, you know, sometimes, you know, there's some, it's outright, you know, demonisation, vilification, whatever word you want to describe, hateful behaviour towards minorities. And disabled people absolutely experience that. And we've seen an increase in that over the last decade as sort of, you know, politicians and newspapers became much more free in using this really sort of hateful language about scrounging disabled people. But a lot of the time, as you say, I think it's, it's sort of, it's just, it's it's not, you know, willful um, prejudice. It's not hateful rhetoric. It's it's a more complex um, confusion and misunderstanding of what disability actually is. I think we're an issue where we've had, you know, huge gains in the last few decades, disabled people's integration into society. But we're still at a point where, you know, disabled people are so um, badly represented in so many areas whether it's, you know, politics or the media um, or just integration into the workplace or mainstream education, it's really easy for people not to come across disabled people in their everyday lives. And I think that, that's a huge issue. That's a huge factor in how, you know, we still have these um, really ongoing prejudice around disability. And all of that, I think, really feeds in really powerfully to how governments are able to treat disabled people and the public's willingness to go along with that. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I was shocked uh, last night, even watching Channel 4 News, and I, I can't remember the name of the presenter now. Is it Jackie Long? But even at the end of when she was doing a bit about the, you know, the, the, the cruelty of cuts and about how, uh, having to, uh, you know, the amount of people having to appeal, she still, at some point in her interview, said, well, of course, everyone has to get a job. And it was sort of when reading your book and when you talk through how jobs aren't catering for the same people. You know, there's this constant narrative of, well, you have to get a job, we have to put people back into work, and yet nowhere are they letting, you know, putting the money into workplaces so that they can cater for disabled staff. It just, it's it's absolutely bizarre that that's still the mindset, but perhaps there isn't the understanding that, you know, every area is blocked off at the moment. Yeah, I think when you when it comes to talking about disability in work, you have to go from sort of the mindset that there's sort of two... Um, areas where one you have to accept that there are people who by nature their disability or or mental health cannot work no matter what support are provided and that those people are contributing to society just as much as people who are in the labour market and that they deserve um, a decent quality and standard of life which they currently aren't, aren't receiving and then secondly there's the people who are disabled and absolutely can work, but just currently aren't being given the practical support to enable them to do that. And at the same time, um, that employers simply are, even though it's illegal to discriminate against disabled people now, on a day-to-day basis, you know, disabled people are much more likely to be turned down um, from employers simply because um, they're disabled. Um, so there's, there's multiple issues there, I think. But any any policies towards disabled people and work, I think, have to really importantly have a sort of twin values of there are some people who will never be able to work and they deserve support and the people who can work need support but in a different way. I mean, one of the sort of other things, uh, there's lots of things that struck me about your book. Um, and again, as I said, I just, I didn't think, I, I don't think I ever understood the extent to which uh, cuts have been made to disability rights um, uh, across the board. But so many of them are almost, uh, and I think you mentioned towards the end of it, you call one of them a catch-22 situation, but they are very Joseph Heller-esque. You know, the, the story of a, you know, a man who's too well to claim benefits, apparently, but not able to get work or study. Um, and it was the, the woman that was doing that. And then there was another one who lost benefits because they missed an assessment appointment because he was bedridden you know it's and it just seems it's such cruelty to do that to people such sort of manipulation it's something you'd see in a film when someone did a conspiracy against you know and and what i i was I, I keen to understand is um obviously uh some of its ideology which i want to talk about but is it also is some of these a lack of communication between systems is it um you know how much is to do with the priority being uh to cut money from things what what's how how has all this come together to create such an awful um, situation? Yeah, I mean, obviously, the, you know, as you said, there's multiple factors at work, isn't there? And I think, I think, you know, centrally, when you start public policy on the basis of cost cutting, it is never going to, you know, end well. But, you know, the, the the last ten years have seen um, policies implemented, for example, the the disability benefit that helps people pay for the extra cost of disability it used to be called disability living allowance and that was scrapped and the coalition government brought in a new supposedly tougher version um, called personal independence payments and they were really clear about that they said you know the point of this benefit is to make it tougher and to get ideally half a million less um, fewer disabled people um, off the off the benefit bill and that was you know that was outright at, we are introducing this policy in order to save money. 
And that's, it's guaranteed that, that, that when that's your thinking, that that is going to um, result in disabled people suffering and being cut out of the system when they absolutely need support. And I think, aside from the cost-cutting element, part of it is what we were saying earlier, which is the kind of fundamental misunderstanding of what it actually is to be disabled and what it is to be in poverty. You know, a lot of the time, the majority of the time, the people designing these policies are rarely disabled and they've rarely had any experience of being on low income, quite the opposite. They've had, you know, incredibly privileged lives. And it enables them to create policies that I think are to them in good in theory, but actually in practice, when you relate it to the reality of people's lives, it, you know, is is is, is genuinely dangerous. I think I think that's a key issue too, um, actually getting people who are experiencing this sort of life involved in the policy making in the first place, and, and I mean, some of it, as sort of briefly mentioned, is you know, I, I sort of thinking back to Ian Duncan Smith, Lord Freud, Esther McVeigh, that made such horrific comments, basically sort of treating disabled people like you know they're just sort of scum of the earth. Like they, it seems to me, a lot of their comments seem to suggest that they have absolutely no humanity towards them, um, <laughs> which is 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 quite funny. A, a friend of mine, uh, Tatton, who's uh, from Simple Politics, and we, we spoke a couple of weeks ago, and his whole thing is that all the ideologies just want the best for people. But it was it was very hard, especially 2010, 2015, hearing people like Ian Dung Smith talk about uh, policies for disabled people, that, you know, to think that there was any compassion there. Um, what is, is, is it just an ideology of cruelty? Or do you think this is all part of the austerity? I, I mean, you know, it, it's very, I find it very hard to understand what on earth is behind it. Yeah, I, I think you, you start, don't you, from a place where you accept that different political groups, different people have different ideologies and that the conservative ideology, you know, believes that a smaller state leads to better outcomes. I think most of us, even though we, I disagree with that deeply on a political level, can accept that. But I think the problem becomes that when you see the results of that ideology, when you see the, what austerity as an ideology has actually caused over the last decade, it becomes very difficult to see um, how anyone can carry that on. I think a lot of people, you know, like yourself, say, actually, this is reached a point where, where it's not, this isn't party politics, this is just literally basic humanity. If you listen to these stories, if you see the volume of research from MPs, from charities, from think tanks, from disabled people-led organisations, it is undeniable that these policies, whether it's disability benefit changes or social care cuts, are causing absolute hell for people, and yet still no changes are coming. I think that's the really difficult bit for a lot of people, the fact that no matter what they're saying, no matter what they're going through, nothing is happening. They have been fundamentally abandoned by the very people who are in power supposedly to help them. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. 
So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Have to get 30, 30, to get 30, bet you get 20, 20, 20, bet you get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. And we'll be back with Francis in a minute. But first, if I said the words modern slavery to you, you'd probably think it was some album by a Mercury-nominated alternative electro-pop band whose worst sufferance was that time the sound tech so they didn't know how to connect their emotions to the mixer desk and there were no turmeric fountains backstage. But actually, modern slavery is real slavery just now. New and not at all improved and really, really horrible. Examples include trafficking, people being forced to work to pay off a debt, child slavery, domestic servitude, forced marriage, and of course having to painfully somehow write jokes about an incredibly bleak subject, all for no pay and just because the people demand it every single week. <clears throat> okay, not the last one, obviously. Why did I choose this subject for a comedy podcast? <laughs> oh. The Modern Slavery Act was passed in the UK in 2015 and at the time was hailed as a landmark set of measures. It meant the traffickers could be jailed for life and supposedly gave better protection for vulnerable people while forcing big businesses to outline their actions to avoid forced labour. Except a parliamentary review that started last July and was revealed just a couple of weeks ago found that it doesn't really do any of those things at all. There were 7,000 victims of modern slavery that were known in the UK last year, which is a rise of a third from 2017, with nearly half of them being children used as drugs mules for gangs. But the Global Survey Index says the UK is actually home to 136,000 modern slaves, which is a good deal higher than all government estimates. What? This government get their figures wrong? Who would have thought that? And this week it's been revealed that the Home Office has been releasing victims of trafficking from immigration detention back to the addresses where they were originally enslaved, as no safe housing has been arranged for them. And that's a total horror. I mean, imagine Yarl's Wood ending up being the brief respite from an even worse life. That's 10 billion times worse than when you turn over the news for a breather, only to find Jamie Oliver's on the other channel pretending that pasta is exotic. And it doesn't even compare. Look, you try and make jokes about this subject that you've chosen to do for your comedy politics podcast and now maybe regret it a bit. Okay? Okay? The panel for the review is made up of Frank Field, the former Labour MP and now independent, who complained that immigrants take all the jobs and is very pro-Brexit. Maria Miller, the Conservative MP who was forced to resign after overclaiming expenses. And Baroness Elizabeth Butler-Sloss, who had to resign from being the chair of the child abuse inquiry due to family connections that meant she would be non-partisan about it all. So, as they say, it takes one to know one, and those three have the perfect set of skills between them to spot when workers and children are being exploited. In their review, they made 80 recommendations, focusing on things like how the law needs to actively punish big businesses more if they don't disclose their anti-slavery actions. It turns out that 29 of the UK's biggest companies don't at all, although Marks & Spencer and Tesco's were the best at doing it. I'm happily surprised by the latter, because their slogan of every little helps really doesn't bode well. Another of their suggestions was that changes are made to the role of the independent anti-slavery chief, currently taken by former police chief Sarah Thornton, so that they can scrutinise the government's actions more thoroughly. 
which is good as Thornton only took the job after the previous anti-slavery chief quit complaining about government interference. Which is incredible as most other areas this government just seemed to avoid neglect and then claim they had absolutely no idea why it failed. Other proposals were to give financial compensation for victims and support for child victims. But unsurprisingly, critics have said that none of this addresses how the current drastic immigration law leads to trafficking and abuse, as power was taken away from undocumented workers in the Immigration Act, meaning that employers can continue to abuse workers' rights, while it's only those who are exploited that end up punished. The UK Act does strange things, such as provide its own definition of human trafficking, because it seems UK politicians are obsessed with providing their own version of what everything means. Do you remember when they changed poverty to no longer mean anything to do with wealth? And how Prime Minister now just means a weird, vapid, listless entity? Strange. Well, Modern Slavery Act doesn't use the international version of human trafficking, which defines even more acts under that title. So currently, under UK terms, offenders involved with the offence, but not directly, such as in through recruitment or reception, aren't implicated in the crimes. The fact is, it's great that it was reviewed and shown to be not good enough, but the review is also not good enough, and really, to tackle modern slavery, the government probably needs to not be in government anymore, as rather than actually deal with labour exploitation, they'll probably just say the term now means when the opposition take the piss about something the government have done badly. And now, back to Francis. Yeah, there doesn't, as I said, it's not even really been mentioned until very recently. You know, it hasn't been in in the news, um, despite it being on ongoing. The suffering that people are going through um, is, I mean, you know, we've been promised an end to austerity, which hasn't really happened. But is you know, is would that be enough to repair the damage? I mean, it's, it, all the things that are coming through uh, and the and the way you talk about it in the book, obviously, universal credit is not any good i guess it requires more than just an end it needs a, a huge ho- overhaul of the of the system mm. yeah absolutely i think you know it's a case of when they say you know so it's over clearly as you say you know we we know from the from the next few years um that things like universal credit and social care continual um changes to the the tax and benefit system means that that simply isn't true we know austerity isn't over. And as you say, at the same time, in order to austerity truly be o- to be over, we need to not only stop the the, uh, the rollout of, of, of these changes and cuts, but we need to address the ones that have already caused such harm. So it's going to take rapid investment in things like the social care system to, um, you know, to, to undo some of the of the harm that has been done. You'll never be able to take away the pain that people have already endured. But through rapid and sufficient investment, you'll be able to ensure it doesn't um, happen in the future. But things like, you know, the fit-for-work tests, the introduction of personal independence payments, there's these policies um, that simply need radical overhaul. And unless you radically overhaul them, um, I don't think you could ever play with a straight face that this is over. It's just going to continue. Yeah, I mean, it's even... I, I think that, uh, again, I was very aware of when Atos were doing the tests and how awful they were, and I think it's sort of... Uh, which I feel just is shameful about, but, you know, it's sort of gone from my mind because it hadn't been reported on, but forgetting that they aren't even medical professionals that are checking people and they're not taking the word of medical professionals seriously. I mean, all of that just seems like such a bizarre way to run anything uh, when it comes to somebody's health, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think I think that's the thing. It's it's this this we've departed so far from not only just compassion towards each other, 
but just basic common sense. I don't think there's any any business that would run itself the way we are running, um, you know, public policy towards assessing whether or not people need disability support. The the level of failure, you know, the point where seventy percent of people that I, that um, appeal their benefit rejection have that rejection overturned at tribunal. That, you know, that level of of failure from these private companies that nonetheless the government is is pushing hundreds of millions of public money towards. Um, it's just a classic example of of you know nothing else would possibly be run this way, yet yet we still are doing. Um, and the consequences are, you know, as serious as it can be. It's people who are having the money that they that they need to survive on being pulled away. Yeah, I mean, that, that's another thing that I want to mention is just how bizarre, again, your book fantastically makes the, the, the point that is costing more money to do this uh, to disabled people than than to care for them properly, <laughs> which is just crazy to think that then it's being, you know, they're pushing ahead with such plans that are then costing more money to put people in temporary homes or hostels rather than just adapt homes correctly or build homes that are suitable. It, it, all the way along, it just seems to be a money-losing exercise and at the same time cruel, so it doesn't... There's no winning i don't understand who wins out of it at all um and, and i mean i hate to ask i, I read your your recent brilliant article on um you know the the, the facts of brexit and, and looking at it i'm, I'm guessing brexit is going to be a further threat in in terms of funding and costs or or is the main threat at the moment that it's mainly making any other news obsolete yeah i think i think when it comes to brexit that's another another area that disabled people just haven't really been mentioned um when it comes to, to Brexit. But, you know, disabled people, of course, are going to be fundamentally um, impacted by any any removal from the EU. Um, you know, things like the European Accessibility Act, there's various pieces of EU legislation that protect disabled people. Um, but also, as you say, on a more sort of, um, you know, basic level, it's, it's simply the lack of attention that, that is being paid to anything else. You know, we, we we see things like the social care paper that we were promised a couple of years ago, and it's still just being sort of kicked around that we've seen no sign of. There's the 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 crisis in you know whether it's homelessness or or social care or growing child poverty or what's happening to disabled people. These fundamental issues are getting no attention whatsoever. Um, and then of course you know you've got the the added issue of whether we end up with a with a no deal Brexit and the the damage that that will cause to the economy. And as we've seen over the last ten years, any economic downturn leads to the poorest and disabled people being the first to take that brunt. Um, so I think yeah, absolutely. I think that that Brexit is going to be sort of twinned, if you like, with the issues of austerity um, in a way that that will will shape the next few years. Um, you mentioned uh, towards the end of the book, and I don't want to give spoilers to anyone that's going to read it. <laughs> but it's, uh, I feel I should say that even even with a book like yours, where it's a, a, a series of case studies. Um, but it, you know, it, you mentioned at the end that the mindsets are changing, um, and uh, that sympathy towards those in need is sort of returning in a way. And I think, um, uh, while perhaps not relatable in terms of disability rights, but you know, things like Jeremy Kyle getting cancelled, daytime TV doesn't seem to be as much about benefit scroungers anymore, and tends to be a bit more about hunting for antiques. Um, do you, you know, does does it does that kind of give you hope that disability rights might return to where they were at least pre twenty ten? I mean, I've got a feeling, 
nothing can go anywhere while we still have this government. But, you know, do you have... Them, it, it felt like reading through the book, it was quite sort of bleak until the end and that you give a little moment of hope. Where's, where's that? <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I think one of the, the key messages of the book that I wanted was saying, absolutely, there are horrendous things happening and we should not sanitise that and avoid talking about it. But at the same time, you, you need that thread of hope, don't you? Because hopelessness gets us absolutely nowhere. We need to to have that sense that things do not have to be this way. And that was really what the key message for me was, that, you know, it's sort of a sign of hope um, as much as a, a grim fact that the way that disability rights have been rolled back over the last decade was not inevitable. It was a result of political choices. And that means, you know, the good news from that is that it is entirely within our collective power to change that and to to turn things around. And I think there is hope. I think, you know, polls show that people are increasingly um, fed up with government cuts across the board. Attitudes to disabled people are slowly improving again. Um, I think people are becoming more collectively aware of the damage these sort of policies are doing to society. It's no longer just affecting disabled people. It's very much spread out into wider um areas of, of, of the country, which I think helps people create a sense of sort of solidarity of the impact of these cuts. So I think absolutely there is hope there. It, it, it's a crucial time, I think, for politics generally in this country in sort of figuring out what sort of country we want to be right now. And I think there's never been a more important time to, to ask these questions and how we treat disabled people, what the welfare state is going to look like, I think are in really crucial questions. Definitely, definitely. Um, and I want to ask, it's just a question that I ask everyone uh, that comes on this podcast, um, and thanks again for having time to chat. Um, uh, apart from uh, your book, which I highly recommend all listeners go out and get, um, uh, and obviously uh, your articles and your Twitter, um, what other writers, campaigners and groups would you recommend listeners check out if they're keen to find out more info um, about well, the threat to disability rights, how to campaign to improve them, anything along those lines? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's another sign of hope that there, you might have to look for it a little bit, but there's a huge amount of, of, um, of disabled campaigners and, um, and, and journalists sort of um, putting forward um, not only what's happening, but ways we can, we can fight against it. So my favourites um, have to be Disabled People Against Cuts, who are uh, a, a great organisation, which as the title implies, um, are disabled people who campaign in various ways against cuts that, that affect disability support. Um, groups like um, the WOW campaign, um, which um, are, are currently campaigning for um, the government to finally um, be honest about the cumulative impact of cuts. So not just looking at them in isolation, but looking at how all of them added together are impacting disabled people. And both of those groups are online, you can join in on Twitter and on their websites. Um, and my colleague, Patrick Butler, I'll have to give a shout out to at The Guardian, who does amazing reporting um, on, on these sort of issues. 
Thanks so much to Frances for having the time to talk to me and to her publisher's Verso for very kindly sending me an advanced copy of her book so I could read it before I interviewed her. Um, Frances is on Twitter at Dr Frances Ryan. Uh, she regularly has articles in The Guardian that are always very worth a read and her book, which I cannot recommend enough, um, though, as I have mentioned, some of it, the parts that refer to the situation some people in are really, really bleak, uh, albeit important and eye-opening. Um, her book is called Crippled, Austerity and the Demonization of Disabled People. Uh, it's out now and it's available at all good bookshops as well as moderately behaved ones and likely a handful of immoral ones too. I'll pop a link to the latter of those on the pod blurb. Thanks to the ever-excellent Jason Reed from the Stop and Search podcast for recommending I drop Francis a line. And I've got two more guests already lined up, but there are five more shows before the podcast takes a summer break. So, who do I do talking to? Whose ears shall I fire questions into, only for my ears to be bombarded by a series of retaliatory answers? All suggestions are welcomed, apart from some of them. Why not see if your suggestion is a good one or a bad one? And please let me know who to talk to, what to find someone to talk to about, and you can do that all via at Palpobro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast group on Facebook, the contact page on partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or you could mow your suggestion in some fields nearby an airport and next time I fly anywhere I could see as the plane comes into land, except chances are I'll have forgotten or been too stingy to pre-book seats so I'll get stuck by the wing again and you'll just really confuse a tourist or make some people think aliens are asking for some very specific test subjects. So as always, it's probably just best to email, isn't it? <laughs> And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed your fill of jokes and info and thoughts and the occasional horrible breath noise. If you did, why not consider throwing one of your Earth Money tokens towards the Patreon or Ko-fi pages, reviewing the show with a five-star rating somewhere I can see it so my fragile ego will survive another day. Sorry, I mean, so other people can see it's worth tuning into, or just tell everyone you ever know uh, to give it a go, because they never know, they might just like it a little bit. Or they'll hate it, choose never to speak to you again, and then win. That's one fewer social occasion you have to attend. Hooray! Tata Acast for pod platforming, my brother the last sceptic for all the sounds that aren't from my mouth or other body parts, and to Cat Day for typing up the linear liner notes every single goddamn week. This will be back next week when the Conservative leadership campaign ramps up to the lip sync challenge, but all contestants fail, assuming it's something to do with lip service and just carrying on their campaigns as usual. Bye! This week's show is sponsored by Lamb. Not enough places to hang up your clothes? Try a lamb. Drafty front doors? Stick a lamb there. No one to watch your amateur dramatics play? Fill up the seats with lambs. Stuck with nothing to finish your poem with, but it needs to rhyme with jam? Try lamb. Lamb, 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 lamb. You'd be bleating mad not to. No, wait, no, wait. You'd be barmy. No, wait. Don't be sheepish. Try lamb. Oh, God, I hate my life. New for 2019, Lamb School Edition. New extra light school-sized lamps for every child to be able to carry one under their arm, squish it into their lunchbox or wear for PE. Hurry while breeding stocks last. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods 
for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.